Welcome to Every Horror Movie on Netflix, the show where we watch, discuss, and review every horror movie on Netflix. As always, I'm Chris again, here with Patrick again. Hello. Elizabeth again. Hey. And Steven again. Hi. And this week, something a little bit new. We have broken the order, the alphabetical order, because um, Gerald's Game has been released onto Netflix, and it's a Netflix-exclusive horror movie of some... Uh, possible prestige. So we thought you might want to know what's going on with that movie before we get to it in alphabetical order because we won't get to the G's until probably late 2018. If then. We might not even be alive then. So we're talking about it today. And uh, it, we, we just watched it, didn't we? Yeah, we just watched it uh, probably, I would say, 20 minutes ago. All of us together. This is the first time we've watched one of these movies all together. Like a family. Like a family. And we embargoed it. We did not comment. We made no comments It was about quiet it. as a tune. Well, <laughs> yeah, I don't know about Let's that. Let's be honest. There were a few. Okay. Yeah. Well, a few, though. When you're watching a movie like this, it's difficult not to say something at some point out loud. The movie, it's uh, based on a book by Stephen King. And it's been uh, adapted for the screen by Mike Flanagan. Your boy. I don't know if I would call him my boy, but if you're uninitiated, (laughs) um, he has several above-average horror movies under his belt. I think that's fair to say. Agree? The ones? Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, above-average is fair. I wouldn't say he's made a masterpiece yet, but he has done Oculus. He has done Hush, which is also a Netflix-exclusive horror movie. And uh, one of my favorite horror movies of the uh, last year... Was it 2016? Yeah. One of my favorite horror movies of last year, Ouija, Origin of Evil. And now... Surprisingly good. Now he's doing Gerald's Game. So, um, who wants to set up the premise of Gerald's Game? I will, because I, I recently actually read the book to prep for this podcast that's right i was fascinated by this concept and i kind of wanted to find out what the book is all about before we got a chance and it's a quick book so So i haven't read the book at all patrick you finished the book elizabeth is what halfway through the book yeah that's about right and steve read the book but a while ago no i've never read the book i've read synopses i've read interviews but not the the text no so patrick why don't you set it up for us yeah so it's about a couple who seems to be having Uh, more than a little difficulty in their marriage. It's Gerald and Jesse are the husband and wife, and they go to uh, kind of a romantic weekend getaway at their summer home or their lake house and whatever, you know, rich people thing. While they're there, Gerald pulls out a pair of handcuffs, which he's got a fetish for, and chains Jesse to the bed. While this is going on, she's not having any of it. She's not into it. And kind of subconsciously not really trying to hurt him but more trying to defend herself as she's telling him no no i don't want this she in the book kicks him in the balls and he is injured has a heart attack i think right heart attack i think in the book as well little different circumstances in the movie which is fresher in my mind right now and uh dies leaving her to struggle with hallucinations kind of fragments of her own psyche as she figures out how to escape this trap so it's very much a bottle episode kind of thing Reminds me, at face value, of another famous Stephen King work, Misery. Sure. About a guy trapped in a bed, kind of 
trying to overcome circumstance. Definitely. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of an interesting premise because it really right off the bat brings up it brings up like real life horror right off the bat because you can at least for me you can put yourself in her position and she is trapped to this bed and cannot go anywhere even even when her husband is still alive and she's concerned that he's going to rape her you know is really uncomfortable with trying to save their marriage and doesn't know if she should go along with kind of his like fantasy or if she should resist it and so that's a pretty tense scene right away and then he dies and it's just her and her sort of hallucinations and everything else that happens, which is also horrific. So it's kind of double horror. And even before that, like on their way to this lake house, their their relationship is very tense and kind of disturbing in itself. Like you really get the sense early on that he has complete control over her in the marriage. Um, and he, that he is not painted to be a good guy. Which is really nicely played by Bruce Greenwood and Carla Gugino right off the bat. Like the performances are, I mean, it's not, it's not, over the top, it's very subtly that dynamic is established right off the bat. And they throw in, they, they have the help of a stray dog, who there's a stray dog, and, and Jesse is like, let's help this dog. And he's like, no, that stray is going to get what it deserves. So right away, you know, you want to build a little sympathy, throw in a dog. You want to make someone a villain, have them say, that dog should die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a moment I liked early on in the film relating to the dog is they, they get to their lake house. We'll assume it's in Maine somewhere because it's Stephen King. It's in sure. uh, Louisiana. Yeah, in the movie it is. In it the is book, in the it's in Maine. The book, it's, okay, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. shooting me down right off the bat. Tax in the movie, it's in Louisiana. Yeah, for tax reasons, <laughs> the, the movie is in Louisiana. So well, that, may, that is important later. Yeah. So that's the only reason I said it. Sorry, Steve. Well, in, in the movie, it's unclear at the beginning what Gerald's profession is, but we get the sense that obviously he's very wealthy. She's the trophy wife. I mean, he can afford this house. He stocked the fridge with food, and Jesse finds some cuts of meat and goes outside to to draw the stray in. She feels so much um, sympathy for this poor creature. And uh, Gerald comes out and asks what she's doing. It's a very tense moment, and it's because this is Kobe beef. From Kobe. Uh, Kobe ribeye from Kobe, which is $200 <laughs> a portion. And I like that you see both sides of him in this moment, where he's immediately upset with her because she's taken this very expensive meat and offered it to the stray dog. But then he also he likes that side of her. He seems to wish he was as, as sensitive as she is. I feel like that that scene in and of itself like sets up everything you need to know about the relationship in like 20 seconds. Well, and it was interesting to me because, I mean, so often uh, film adaptations of books are accused of leaving things out from the book. Like people who love the book are always like, oh, they left out my favorite part. And this is interesting in that right at the beginning of the movie, they add quite a bit, a chunk of extra setup that doesn't happen in the book. Like the book basically what page two she's chained to the bed no i mean i think i'm pretty sure it opens with her chained to the bed and she's thinking out loud like she's not comfortable and blah blah blah. there's no drive up there's no they don't really she hears the dog in the distance but she's not um they haven't encountered it at all there's no real setup of their relationship or anything like that or anything you know in the movie he has prepared the lake house for them he's purchased all this expensive food he seems to want them to have a good weekend in the book there's none of that but it really doesn't matter because in both he's dead within 15 pages or and or 10 minutes. So. Well, they um they flesh out their relationship, but also I thought it was very efficient the way they did. They don't spend a ton of time developing these characters and mm-hmm. cuts to the chase pretty early, but it still develops them very well. And very soon after he dies, which it's interesting that in, in the movie he dies because he's taken too many Viagras. <laughs> 
which is definitely a significant. Oh, I didn't. Excuse me, I didn't pick up on that. Well, yeah, they're linked to high blood pressure, so uh, it, that's it made sense to me that way. I don't know if that's what they were trying to say. There was probably a lawsuit if they were trying to be explicit about that in a movie. <laughs> but yeah, the Viagra's and that I assume the Viagra's. When was the book written? Because I'm sure it was ninety two. That's pre Viagra, I think. <laughs> yeah, in the book he just has a heart attack, but um, in both instances well in the book she knees him and he falls off the bed and has a heart attack in the movie she has a heart attack on top of her which is pretty horrifying and then she in the process of trying to get him off of her she ends up knocking him off the bed and he falls off and hits his head really hard and there's your movie she is chained up handcuffed on both sides like a crucifix almost to the bedposts how is she gonna get out of here before she succumbs to death one thing I really like about this movie um, is that I expected it, I mean, because I've heard of the book, I expected it to jump right into her being chained up to the bed, and then what happens afterward. I like that it takes a little bit of time, not too much, maybe 12 minutes or so, setting things up, and you really do feel like you know every corner of this room. Mm-hmm. There's really great sound design. I mean, the way that you can hear the headboard moving, and the wood creaking a bit, you hear the, um, as he's as Gerald is putting the handcuffs on Jesse, you sort of, f- like, feel what it would be like to be in that position um like again he doesn't the director doesn't take too much time setting that up but you do you do immediately sort of empathize with uh, jesse's position as this is happening yeah the sound is great and almost as soon as he dies we're introduced to a couple of sort of characters that uh stick with us for the rest of the movie basically these hallucinations that jesse has both of gerald who kind of represents uh like a self-doubting part of her psyche mm-hmm. and a hallucination of herself who's sort of like the stronger more forceful person that I think she wishes she could be. And they sort of duel uh, and and uh, verbally spar with her and with each other throughout the movie, which is pretty... I liked that. That yeah, was cool. Yeah, it's pretty high energy and, and pretty fun. I'm just wishing this movie had come out before I did a semester of acting class at the community college because the monologues that are in this movie that Hamlet. I could have harvested... As good as Hamlet. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Great, great monologues about death and... You know, all kinds of stuff that I would have loved to have performed the one time I had to perform a monologue in my class. The two hallucinations are another interesting departure from the book because in the book, there's sort of like a, I don't know, like, there's like four or five different like sort of multiple personalities that pop out of her by the end of the book. And like one of a, one of them is an old college friend. One of them is like herself, but sort of like the more puritanical, like good wife version of herself. And I don't know, they they play okay in the book, but I don't know, they, they don't work as well as these two very boiled down archetypes that you get in the movie. It works better. And the performances are great. You mentioned uh, Greenwood Man. He's great. He's, he's great. great. And goddamn, he's in good shape. How old is that man? I don't he, know. I could not stop thinking about that. He's in... <laughs> <laughs> well, they probably gave him some notice. If you give me a month's notice that I'm going to have my shirt change. off for a whole movie... He would show up looking the same. Yeah, he but today. what about when you're like 60 years old? <laughs> I don't know. It, it's been done. And then I, I, I haven't said her name because I don't know how to pronounce her last Carla name. Carla Gugino. Carla Gugino. Mm-hmm. She plays Jesse, and she plays the Jesse hallucination as well, and she's great in both roles. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, she's having these sort of hallucinations, which are the two parts of her mind, and that goes on for quite a while, and um, kind of battling each other. And basically, for first, you know, 15, 20 minutes, it's her really believing that she can get out somehow. So she's 
trying to escape in various ways. She's trying to find a way to drink the cup of water that was left on the shelf above the bed. She is trying to reach the phone, doesn't succeed. And these voices are kind of sparring with her. But I think someone should bring up one of the most, the thing that triggers her hallucinations, which is the dog that they encountered on the way in. Yeah, so um, after the scene that I mentioned where she leaves the, the meat out for the dog, um, Bruce Greenwood is uh, he is DTF, and he drags her back in the house, <laughs> and she notices that he doesn't, he doesn't close the door, and he's dragging her along, so she doesn't have the opportunity to close the front door to the house. And as she's chained to the bed, after the reality sets in that her husband is in fact dead, she starts to see the blood creep across the floor, which I think is used more metaphorically in the book from what I've read. Um, again, that's probably getting into spoiler territory, but the dog appears and she tries to, you know, snap her fingers and get it away from her husband, but you know, he's hungry. Apparently the Kobe beef wasn't enough. Gotta, <laughs> gotta eat the face. The dog has to eat the face. Um, is that Starts the with the arm. Yeah. That's yeah. in the book. Okay. Cause it seems like a very 21st century sort of meme that dogs will eat your face. Is it? I don't know. It's- no, well, definitely, he definitely snacks yeah. on Gerald's cheek in the book. Yeah. And, and, and the rest of him. And that's, and it's, it is pretty, you know, it is, it's hard to watch. I thought it was tough to watch. This it, whole movie is squirmy. This is. is a squirmy as fuck movie. It is. If you're looking to squirm, watch it. For at least an hour and 20 minutes of the hour and 45 minute runtime, pick Gerald's game. <laughs> and there are some like obvious squirm moments in it, but the one of the squirm moments that worked really well in the book and also works really well in the movie that is not something you'd usually squirm about is a glass of water sliding along a shelf. Like oh, yeah. when she there's, so there's this shelf mounted above the bed and there's a glass of water on top of it. She needs to drink. She's getting dehydrated. And so she's like reaching up there. She can barely reach this shelf and she's because of the handcuffs, she's tipping the shelf to get the glass of water to slide down to her other hand so she can pick it up and drink it. And I was just like, Oh, 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 and I had already read the book even, which was a tense scene in the book, but I was just like on the edge of my seat because that glass of water is constantly looking like it's just going to fall and spill all over the fucking place and it'll all be for naught. And, you know, one of my favorite things about the movie Misery, which I haven't read the book, but the movie Misery, um, the James Caan's character is always like, he's very smart and he's trying actively to get out of his situation in very smart ways. And, and like, there were many times in that movie where I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? They're much more restrained restricted in this movie because there's very little things she can actually do from her position so there's this shelf on top of the bed that provides most of the thrills because she can kind of finger along the edges of it (laughs) right and i I like that scene because again it draws us like further into her predicament very quickly we realize exactly what her limitations are like how far she can pull her hands in either direction how far she can move her head um her feet even as she's trying to kick the dog away she realizes she can't even really kick her feet over the edge of this enormous bed um, and I, I think it was really smart uh, for the director to sort of set that up, you know, in the first like five minutes of her being alone on her own. Yeah. The one thing she doesn't try, which I was reading a comment on like the Netflix Twitter or something about this movie. Um, she doesn't try to like twist her body into a squat and push against the headboard with her legs. I thought of that while watching this, and I was like, I don't think that that looks like a pretty. Strong. To do but what? We just to move to the just, bed to just put more muscle, put her back and legs and butt into p- trying to break the posts oh. off the bed. But um, there is like one line where it's like, oh, it's a reinforced headboard or something. So Fuck it's that. like, it always you know, is whatever. But we just have to accept <laughs> that she's not going to break the headboard, and that works. She does consider something along those lines in the book. 
to be fair. Okay. Um, but you know, I think that the the real we get to the down and dirty. Well, what happens first? The guy in the corner appears, or we get into her childhood. There, so yeah, there's there's another um, there's another character introduced in this film in the first twenty five minutes or so. Um, we don't know if he's real or imagined, but um, you might recognize him from Twin Peaks. I don't know the actor's name, but he. Uh, do you know who I'm talking about, Patrick? No, I didn't know he was in Twin Peaks. Yeah, yeah, he's in like the the red room scene or whatever. I'm pretty sure it's oh, Twin really? Peaks. Yeah, somebody should look him up while we're talking about this. He's been in a few movies, and he's a very strange-looking person. I do think they did put some prosthetics on him. But this this kind of pale figure appears to her her first night alone on the bed after she's woken up, and he slowly creeps toward her. He has this like sort of medical bag that's filled with bones and a, what, a jewelry. bracelet of jewelry. And I'll be honest, I don't really understand... The symbolism, I was not frightened by I this character. I kind of thought that he was just death. I just kind of thought that it was the, she was hallucinating. I thought he was like, in the context of the movie, because I did get this far in the mm-hmm. book, but I, I, I just imagined that it was death, you know. As yeah, I thought the same si- thing. Just kind of coming towards her bag of bones, really, you know, and he was like, get, he was like, this is, this could be you. That's kind of how I imagined They that. dangle the possibility that yeah. they, there's going to be a human interloper coming into the room, and that's an absolutely terrifying possibility. Sure. Um, and, but then they leave you with the death moonlight man whatever and well it's kind of more abstract yeah both in the book and the movie the way he's described and depicted is so outlandish that you're kind of like well that couldn't be real and she sort of convinces herself that it's death and there's still some like you know question as to whether that's correct or not well because if if it if it were real, he wouldn't have to look like that. Not only is it improbable, but it's unnecessary because it's creepy enough to have a normal dude coming in your room right. in that situation. Right. Like, he just, he looks like a figment of someone. He looks what like what you would imagine if you imagined a dude in the corner of your room when you woke up at night. And she says mm-hmm. to herself, you know, she repeats, it's not real, it's just moonlight. And she closes her eyes and, you know, and then she'll open them again and he'll be gone. And he... So that, but it's creepy. He's there. So if you're wondering where the horror comes from in this movie, mostly the Moonlight Man, I would say, and the would say, and yeah. the threat that the dog is gonna gonna jump on the bed and eat her. What you mean? Other than being chained to a bed with no one around, I mean the whole movie is horror. Yeah, I mean this is like the dis- definition of horror to me. I thought that- it had more of a suspense vibe to it. <laughs> That's kind of like misery. But again, I, as um, uh, whether or not this is a horror movie. I, th- I get the sense from listening to interviews that when this book came out, Stephen King, his career was not necessarily in a lull. He was still a big name, but he felt like fans were getting bored with him. So first he wrote Misery, where he's sort of playing with the idea of fans ex- you know, expecting things from him that he's not able to deliver, that he doesn't care to deliver. With this book, I feel like he was trying to prove that he can write something that isn't explicitly horror, that deals with real emotions and sexuality directly as opposed to indirectly, let's say, in It. Um, we don't have to get into that. So, is this a horror movie? I don't know. It has horror elements. That's enough for me. But, you know, we're yes, that's that's well said. But what I'm trying to say is, we're in uh, October now. It's Halloween. It's spooky season. If you're looking for horror movies to set the tone of Halloween, this might not be your first pick. 
I mean, no. yeah, it doesn't have like vampires and ghouls in it. I'm just saying, like this this situation, the basic premise of this of this to me is like the definition of that's horror. Yeah, it's definitely horrific, and it's probably more disturbing than most of the things that go bump in the night movie. But uh, maybe for Halloween, you want to watch a vampire movie. <laughs> Well, look, it doesn't matter what you want to watch for Halloween. If you want, I think that this is a horror movie and that's fine. That's and fine. you could watch it if you wanted to. Um, well, our overlord Netflix says it's a horror movie. So, so there you I go. Mean, we're and I'm looking that. at the book here that I have checked out from the library and it is categorized under adult book fiction horror. Mm. So more than Netflix says that it's horror. The Library of Congress says it's horror. You know, I think it's really unfortunate that people keep painting Stephen King in that corner. That yes. Only do it. I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, are you? Oh, Chris was so ready to argue. No, I was totally ready to argue that point because I haven't read a lot of Stephen King, but one of the books I did read recently was 112263. Um, That's a fiction. Oh, the reason I was joking is because I know that he's capable of more than that. Yeah, but, and, yeah. and when I recommend that book to people, they say, oh, Stephen King. I'm like, no, it's not, you know, he's a, he is a versatile writer. So I'm glad you agree. So here's a, a, a thing that occurred to me while I was reading the book and again, watching the movie. I mean, the book is obviously written by a wait, man. Wait, wait, you've read the book? Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> the book is obviously written by a man. The movie is directed and by a man and written by two men. To me, it seems like a surprisingly perceptive story about women. What do you think? It was not a problem for me watching this movie at all. Again, because Carla Gugino is such a... Um, I don't know, such a strong performer. Like I never, I, I, I don't think she would take on a role that would force her to, to do, to be objectified mm-hmm. in any way. Like she's just, I'd, I'd like to see interviews with her and learn more about her. But like, I worried, it was like, okay, it's a book written by a man and it's a movie written by a man and directed by a man that primarily features a female protagonist. Like I, it just, it felt a little like cringy to me before I even started. And that, that never became an issue for me while watching it. I guess I was pleasantly surprised in the book. Cause I don't know, just cause Stephen King seems so likely to like disappear up his own ass all the time. I was just like, wow, <laughs> you seem like you actually thought about like you, what this would be like. Well, I thought well, the book was a little bit, I thought the movie did a better job of portraying from the woman's perspective than the book actually. Because mm-hmm. I thought in the book a little bit, it did make her seem a little bit beyond, like it made her seem kind of beyond, like especially when it opens, she's like, oh, Gerald, like you're disgusting prick. Like, oh, mm-hmm. look at you. Like, it's kind of like, I don't think that's necessarily a great portrayal. I thought the movie was better, whereas she's just like, I want this marriage to work. I'm scared. I don't know what to do. Like, she is a strong woman, but she's also kind of confused. And like, it was a much more nuanced performance than this, than the book did. So I give... The director, Mike Flanagan, Flanagan, mm-hmm. more credit than Stephen King. Well, while we're on just the topic, um, one thing that I did like, um, Mike, Mike Flanagan's got a history in all these other movies of having, you know, women in the central roles and stuff like that. But, you know, Netflix is promoting this movie and you have, you know, Carla Gugino. Did I pronounce it right? Gugino. Gugino. Carla Gugino wearing, you know, a sheer silk dress handcuffed to a bed. In the movie, there is nothing titillating or erotic about even the sexy part of this whole experience. No. Which I thought was well done because, you know, it's, you, are, you are squirming even when everything's going great in this movie. Yeah, you know, that's a great point, I think, because in the book, first of all, she's just wearing panties. So, fine. I think that it's great in the movie that they... D- I don't know, because those opening scenes could be pretty titillating. You could kind of, like, hope for more or whatever. You could hope that, like, because Bruce Greenwood, 
right? That's his name? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes this comment like, oh, I think this slit would look even better, like, over your shoulders. And, like, I think that they could have made it so that you were kind of hoping for that, but you don't. No. You're kind of like, ooh, like, hope he doesn't get to that. Like, please let her st- stay dressed. And I thought that, because that, that could be hard to do. Because when you have a naked lady, or not naked lady, but when you have a sexy lady chained to a bed, like, you know, it's hard not to think that you want her to be, like, naked or whatever, and or to be turned on and, like... They do not even nope. go there in this. Well, yeah, I mean, you say when things are going good, but things are never going good. Like, the context Relatively, is established yeah. from square one that, like, things are uncomfortable. And as soon I mean, and, and again, I guess it's a lot of the credit goes to her performance, but just the discomfort and... Both performances. Yeah, but some yeah, things are in her face is obvious as soon as he pulls out the cuffs. Right. But some things aren't going good in basic instinct, and you're still turned on. True. That's... <laughs> That's a much different and much, <laughs> much longer conversation. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> so where were we? <laughs> <laughs> I really want to dig into that, but I have to think about it for a minute. That's a totally different. Well, also, you know, if if you you know the premise of the movie, so you know where this is going too. So they have that hanging over your head. But I think even if you didn't know where it was going, I don't think there would be anything, um, you know, erotic about that scene. It's just all presented very awkwardly. So much credit to the performances, much credit to the director. And, uh, you know, they did, definitely did not play the cheap cheap seats um, for any of that stuff. So the actor in question uh, was in Twin Peaks, okay, right? right yeah. And also played Lurch in the Adams Family movie. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Okay. That's where we know that face <laughs> yeah. and that stature. Yep. And was also in Star Trek The Next Generation, but none of us are Trekkies. So, so he's just a creepy looking guy in real life. Man, that yep. would be tough. Although, or would it be great? Like, if you are so crazy looking that you just got consistently cast to be, like, the creepy dude in the corner, good or bad? I mean, bad. he actually doesn't look that weird. They put some pretty crazy, like, makeup they on did. him. They did. They enhanced his jaw. He's an odd looking dude. He's, he's fine. Tall, actually, but he he's not like, if you saw him walking down the street, you would be like, ugh, you know. Well, yeah. he is like seven feet tall. How tall is he? He is really is tall. Is this high down there? Mm, he's a big yep, guy. Seven feet. Seven foot oh. Wow. Okay. Wow. I called it. Good okay. job. <laughs> well, I mean, what? I think that the the movie starts to climax when we begin to flash back to Jesse's childhood. But we can't do that now. Can we not? Because uh, this is a hard movie to really get into without getting into some serious spoiler territory. Um, so we're going to take a little intermission. Because something happens during an eclipse. We're going to put our eclipse glasses on. It's a very timely movie. So go put your eclipse glasses on and stay tuned through the intermission. And when we come back, we're going to spoil everything. Okay, welcome back. I hope you got your eclipse glasses on. The beautiful thing about this medium is you can enjoy it whether or not you're wearing eclipse glasses or whether or not you've been blinded by an actual eclipse because you looked at it without glasses. (laughs) (laughs) So, as our hero, Jessie, lies in her bed. Heroine. As our heroine, Jessie, lies in her bed. Gendered language. Wrists chafed by the steel handcuffs. Hands numb. Hands numb. Feet cramped. Feet cramped. Lips parched. They did a great job with the makeup in this movie. Absolutely. I, I think they truly chained her to a bed for two days. I have. L- my lips are that parched like every Sunday morning. And 
that's exactly it's tough times what's Very great well is she has that hallucination of like the stronger version of herself so you're constantly reminded of how like how it's terrible she, she was looks. at the beginning yeah. of the movie <laughs> it's so true i did look at that several times because i was like <laughs> not what i was thinking no about. but i did look at her and i was like oh my god she looks awful like i feel so bad and then they would show the real version of her and you would be reminded of how like awful and sick she does look right like it was crazy mm-hmm. that was a great technique it, for a while it looks like it's two different actresses yeah when it gets real yeah. bad yeah um but yeah, so as she's laying there in bed, uh, she's being haunted by all her anxieties in the form of these hallucinations, and she flashes back to her childhood when she was at a similar lake house during a total eclipse with her, is it her father or her stepfather? Father. It is her father and mother and whole family. And the father is played by Henry Thomas, who was the b- little boy in E.T., Oof. Oh, really? And if you're wondering, did he take E.T.'s advice to be good? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. And you know what? The whole concept of trigger warnings is a bit overplayed, but I think like people should know if they're going to watch this movie, if they have like a history with sexual assault or something like that, this is not the movie for you. Yeah, or this you need was to be, really hard to watch. I mean, if you look at the poster, I don't think you can safely guess what we're going to talk about in a moment here. But it's definitely a movie about sexual abuse from the from the get go. Yes, I feel like the poster is a trigger warning. You see the woman chained to the bed, but oh boy, there's a scene. Like we said, this is a squirmy movie. So, so who wants to take the take the bullet and describe this scene? I do. Also, I'd like to say that being chained to the bed is not necessarily sexual abuse between two consenting adults. Of course. But a 12-year-old girl being molested by her father is 100% sexual abuse, and that's what happens in this movie. And we can leave it at that. Uh, We can, or should I go into more detail? I'm happy to describe it. So it's just <laughs> um, somehow, and I, I don't remember exactly, but the 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 father uh, gets young Jesse to watch the the eclipse with him alone on a sort of swinging bench, and she's got her little homemade eclipse box on. I didn't know that was a thing kids did. I've never seen anything like it. Oh, they did. Yeah, we just had an eclipse, and people were all making all that kinds of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, broke kids who that people didn't plan ahead to buy their eclipse glasses from a reputable dealer weeks in advance broke kids <laughs> they, they <laughs> got hose. To- <laughs> they had to get their cereal boxes and make little pinhole like all sorts of macgyver shit to see this eclipse well so i mean this is a this is a really uncomfortable scene beautifully shot i should say um especially for like what seems to be a relatively low budget movie you've got this vista of the lake and the um uh, the docks and and the eclipse, you know, right in the center of the screen, and this kind of red light bathing mm-hmm. everything. And her dad, uh, as as she's kind of focused on the eclipse, talks about how he, you know, he realizes. She, I don't think the movie makes it clear that she's started menstruating, and she's she's a woman now. And he misses when she was a little girl, and she would sit on his lap. And he gradually, very kind of methodically, convinces her. Um, to do just that. She sits on his lap, keeps watching the eclipse, and um, by all appearances, he uh, masturbates with her sitting there. And it's it's a, the sustained scene, very close shot. The camera doesn't look away from it, but you also don't see anything. 
It really did get to me. The excruciating bit of this is that you know when the scene starts, you know where this is going. Yeah. And it builds it so slowly and methodically and, you know, the, the guy's just working on her inch by inch by inch by inch mm-hmm. and it just doesn't cut skip anything. So it's very, very grotesque stuff. The interesting, and I hate to be the guy who keeps bringing up the differences between the movie and the book, but <clears throat> the interesting difference from the book for me was uh, the relationship between her and her dad was set up at, at much greater length. And she seems... In the movie or the book? In, in the book. And she seems younger and more uh, innocent in the book. In the movie, you get the idea that she can kind of tell what he's doing and that she doesn't entirely like it, but he kind of talks her into it. In the book, she... Um, he and uh, the the dad and Jesse conspire kind of together to get the mom to leave them alone. She like wants to be alone with her dad and oh, loves wow. her dad. And it's really built up like how much she wants to be with her dad. And it's that much more like fucked up and heartbreaking in the book because she's so innocent and like wanted to be there with him. And he just like, you know, obviously um, fucking destroys that trust so much. Well, and it, a- just, it just hits a lot harder in the book than in the movie. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there there is a, a one line where the the parents are arguing, and you know the the mom is upset that Jesse you know talks back to her and won't pay any attention to her, and she uses the phrase like "daddy love." Is that what she says? Daddy's little girl. Daddy's little girl. Said. And um, he says, "Well, that seems like normal behavior for her age." So, but what you're describing sounds a lot more compelling. Like it she is, wants to spend yeah. more time alone with her dad, and it's that much more heartbreaking when he kind of. When he abuses yeah. her. Well, That's and why it is th- heartbreaking when he, even in the movie though, I mean, because she, you can tell she sort of knows what's going on, but still it's like her trust is completely blown and she's devastated. Well, that extra element kind of, for me, her kind of knowing what was going on added a layer of disturbingness and awkwardness to the whole thing. It worked better for me in the book, I guess, because of what I've described already. But I also didn't like the I didn't like Henry Thomas's performance that much. I didn't like the dad's performance that much. It came off as sort of disingenuous and especially with uh, performances as strong as Bruce Greenwood's and Carla Gugino's. He didn't that whole and the 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 actress who played young Jesse didn't really hit with me either. Those those flashback scenes didn't work. for me. She feels like an accessory, even in that scene where she's um, I mean, again, she's not being. He's technically not being directly physically abused. He's masturbating on his own, and she's sitting there. I mean, it's still extremely uncomfortable, but there's no um, direct physical contact. I mean, but she still felt not. like an accessory in that scene. Like, the, the actress didn't even seem to understand the scene that she was playing in. Do you know what I mean? She's just kind of sitting there, l- blindly looking through the, eclip- the eclipse um, thing. And as uncomfortable as it was, it didn't feel satisfactorily horrifying. For me, the performances just weren't there. It almost felt the like the buildup was was more uncomfortable than I guess when it got down to the brass tacks. Sure, which is probably for the best because I mean I don't need to see any more. Yeah, I said when the scene came out, I said to all of you, it was I was like I don't want to see a kid get molested <laughs> right now, and it yeah. was like ten minutes later, <laughs> you know, that it got down to the really. I thought it. I guess maybe it's just because they devote so much time to developing that backstory in the book, but that whole scene also felt extremely rushed to me. Wow. It did to me as well. It seemed pretty quick. Like we didn't spend more than any more than ten minutes in that flashback. Well, I just now remember that Henry Thomas is actually a Mike Flanagan alum. He was the priest in Ouija Origin of Evil. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. 
He had the he narrated the spookiest part of that movie. If you haven't seen that one, I urge you to see it. But it's not on Netflix, so get it from your local blockbuster, your local library, <laughs> your, your local, local family library. video. <laughs> so, how do you guys feel like these? Um, because there is another scene after the dad masturbates with young Jesse on his lap where they are in the bedroom and he basically does the crazy like psycho stuff mm. that molesters do when oh, they convince yeah. you not to tell. He's like, you know, like, I think we should tell your mom. And of course, she's horrified. It's, yeah, inception. It's completely fucked up. And that's what molesters do. And, you know, he succeeds. I'm wondering what. You know, this is she's flashing back to these things and is very traumatized both in the past and in the present. I'm wondering if someone or all of you can like sort of explain what role that plays in the current situation of her being chained to the bed. Because I don't feel like I fully pieced that together of like, I guess I just felt like she was flashing back because she was traumatized again and she was kind of dredging up her worst memories. But how did that really play into like what she was experiencing now, you know? Because she was taught to uh, repress basically sexual violence against her from a young age. Like Mm -hmm. that was... Uh, you know, instilled in her. And so she's been locked in this marriage where she's basically been doing the same thing and not really admitting to herself the abuse she was going through in her marriage long before her husband handcuffed her her to a bed against her will and then fucking died. Yeah, there's there's a line very late in the film that that really does sum it up. It's a little too on the nose, but that her, her husband's shackles our uh, comfort and her father's were silence. Oh, right. Cause they do have the image of like the young Jesse also being handcuffed. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think Patrick summed it up perfectly. I mean, like this is clearly like she's repressed this memory. This is the first time she's thought of this since it's happened, presumably. And then we later learn through that second flashback sequence, why she didn't think of it until, until that moment when she's, you know, chained up alone on the bed. Because she swore she would never tell for her entire life. Well, and it's also much more, this was another interesting change from the book to the movie uh, that, and God, this is a lot of more gruesome detail to go into, but there's a lot of detail in the book about like her father's ejaculate on her underpants. And the reason that she like viciously kicks Gerald or one of the reasons that she responds so viscerally in that moment is that uh, like he he drools on her stomach and she makes this like kind of psychological connection between the ejaculate. Well, that's really gross. Um, That's really (laughs) gross. But but, they kind of I mean, they kind of touch on that because he calls himself daddy in the movie. Yes. That sets her off. Yeah. For it just seems like because it's a weird thing in general, but then you find out that oh, there's something deeper going on there. Yeah, it does definitely oversimplify. It seems what the what the book was trying to achieve, but I mean, I mean the point is made probably because you don't want to show that on screen. Uh, yeah, and it's hard to represent on screen. But again, the potent the the psychological connection there was much more potent in the book. Yeah, this is one of the hardest movies that we've watched. Uh, one of the hardest movies to talk about for me that we've watched because the plot is so simple. I mean, it's way simpler than many of the other ones that we've watched. And yet it's so, like, there's so few characters and it's so complex in their minds that it's very hard to summarize in an interesting way and very hard to really explain Um in a way that makes sense without seeing it. So I guess that kind of is a cop-out, but I, I mean that genuinely. And I think this is a tough movie to describe without just kind of, like, summarizing off of, like, what would essentially be a Wikipedia article, although that's not what we're doing, obviously. 
Yeah, it's a simple setup, but then, you know, it's so it, you have the hallucinations going on. I kind of, though, I thought for me it was a bit too much. I was interested in kind of what was going on in the current situation, and they were doing this. Again, I don't want to be, you know, the resident Mike Flanagan expert, but all his movies play, like to play fast and loose with, like, what's going on in this timeline? What's going on with this timeline? What's a hallucination? What's not a hallucination? And I kind of got the same thing in this movie, you know, when there's all the hallucinatory stuff and the flashbacks, and I was like, how's she going to get out of this bed? And I, I mean, I guess ultimately the answer is she has to cope with her past to get out of the bed. Mm-hmm. I guess that's she what they were going for. The, she has to summon the strength and the willpower to do it. And I, I, I think it's, I don't know. I think that's a cool story, like well, delving into her past. Yeah, yeah. Because at a certain point, I mean, someone was talking about monologues, but I mean, Bruce, Bruce Greenwood has a lengthy monologue at one point where that doubting element that he represents in her mind is basically saying, you know, just give it up. Like death is coming back. This death-like figure is coming back tonight, and mm-hmm. there's nothing you can do. Like just give into it. I guess what I'm trying to say is the the bulk of the movie was kind of a mixed bag to me. There was some stuff that I thought was really powerful, and then there were some monologues I thought were great, but then it seemed like it was just kind of padding it out, and some things just weren't working. It seemed like it took a lot. It wasn't very economically told what was going on. Probably to make a running time or something. I disagree. I I was riveted for. I mean, we'll get to it in a bit, but I was riveted for the first, at least the first 90 minutes of this movie. I, I would say probably only the first 90 minutes of this movie. I never had a boring moment. There's just so many times for me that you can have the same hallucinatory stuff saying more or less the same message, you know? I, I, I felt like it all did build to something. I felt like like the like details were doled out very efficiently. I, I yeah I agree and I just, especially I keep comparing it to the book which I hate doing but the book is the book definitely gets to the point where it's like okay how much longer can you like describe the room and like have another character oh well that's like, Stephen King rambling. yeah I mean yeah. he just and I appreciate how much this condensed that story and the the story did move even just with those very few characters two of whom are figments of her imagination. Sure, every monologue moved things along. Um, where do we go next? Well, ultimately. Once she realizes she has to find the strength from her entire life story mm-hmm. to overcome her circumstance, mm-hmm. what happens? Well, there's a moment that <laughs> precedes this. So usually, like, memories sort of trigger the decision she makes while she's in the bed. So she has a moment where she's having dinner with her family after the eclipse. And in her the mom in the, in the past, her mom asks her how seeing the eclipse was with her dad. And she's gripping her, like, glass of milk and just crushes it in her hand out of anxiety because she realizes, like... What happened was horrible, and I can't talk about it. So that leads into her uh, her escape plan. She decided. Reali- yep. Go ahead. <laughs> she realizes that she needs to basically remove some bulk from her hand to get out of one of these handcuffs. So she crushes the glass that she's been drinking out of and uh, uses the glass to just tear her fucking hand open in just an incredible use of prosthetics and just like gore makeup work. Yeah, it was a little bit of a bait and switch for me because um, I thought that they were saying that she... Her, I thought her plan was to slit her wrist, use the blood as a lubricant. That's what I thought oh. too. To That's what I thought yeah. That's also what yeah. I thought. But instead she just like carves a vertical line across her hand Whoa, and even hearing about it now I'm cringing degloves herself uh, through the hand I mean you see like like you see the skin peel back and all these tendons and shit like she basically almost removes the entire 
see skin yeah, off her you hand see, like, like a, a skeleton hand for a minute. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's squirmy. It's a rough scene. Like I said, if you're in if you want to squirm for a good while, this is I, your movie. I'm a David Cronenberg fan, you know, the king of body horror. I, I even like Clive Barker quite a bit, actually. This was way too fucking much for me. For a movie that seems to be, and for a book that seems to be kind of... A, kind of restrained. A, a, kind of restrained. Well, maybe not restrained, but it seems to have a message. I mean, it's, it seems like a very sort of feminist story. I, <laughs> How else was she going to get out? How else was she going to get out? But did we need to see it in that detail? I don't know. It was so extreme. Yeah, I, felt you like, to, uh, I felt like it, it, it sort of ruined any emotional investment I had in the story because I had to sit through that scene. Really? I mean, we were all just like crawling out of our seats. Well, it oh, works. I totally disagree. It works because of the emotional investment, doesn't it? Yeah, you have to build. I mean, yeah, you empathize with her because that's... I mean, you have to see that. You have to feel that I will that say this. Okay, so I did feel that with her. And I do think that... The, the movie like sufficiently brought us up to her mental state at the moment she makes that decision to get out of there. But I feel like it kind of made me forget all the deeper themes of the film at the same time. I felt like this is like more of like a prurient sort of horror film and not a real drama. It, it's mm. not like I, I didn't feel like the, the writer director or even Stephen King were as interested in the characters as they seem to be from the outset. Well, you want a little more metaphor because this uh, film doesn't have very much of that. Huh. Come on. <laughs> Patrick's being sarcastic. Uh, but, you know, they write themselves into a corner. She's handcuffed to the bed. I can't think... I mean, how would you prefer to see her get out? I, it's it's not an issue of how she gets out. It's how I see her get out. And I don't need to see that whole fucking thing. So you thing. would rather... You would be okay if it were just a closed door and you heard her screaming and then you saw her like with flesh hanging from her hand or something. The I rest of this movie does such die. a great job with suggestion. And this is the one scene where he goes... The director goes completely overboard. And I mean, it is one of the most gruesome things I can remember seeing in a movie. And this, I don't feel like it was earned. I don't feel like I... Not even that it wasn't earned. I just don't... I can't understand why anybody would want to see that. And I don't think there was really an emotional payoff to really seeing her fucking bones as she rips the flesh off her It head. was, you know, it was... It was within bounds of anything you would see in a Saw movie, really. Like, I think the guy sawing off his leg in the first Saw, spoiler alert, was less gruesome than this. Definitely. I, strong, I strongly like. I strongly disagree with you, though. I mean, like, that is an emotional payoff. Like, that's such an emotional moment. And also, interestingly, King almost describes... Actually, I guess that's not surprising at all that he describes it in even more gruesome detail in the book. Oh, of course he does. There's probably, but, what, like 20 pages devoted to oh, that? Oh, yeah. And I cringe so much <laughs> even just reading it. Like, you don't even have to see it. I was just like, oh, the whole time I was reading I'm, it. I might be on Team Steve here, or at least I think I might be able to relate to what he's saying. You can't really draw a line between the lessons and stuff and the, the drama and the and stuff that's going on in her mind up to that point to that, like, decision and that, like, amount of gore. Is that at all what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. So uh, one thing that I should note, we did mention this at the beginning of the episode, but, I mean, this is a very fresh take on this movie. We just watched this thing. I'm still processing it. Yeah, I'm we might all have a completely different conversation so, tomorrow. So I'm kind of talking through my thoughts, um, listener, if it doesn't make a lot of sense. That's why. But, yeah, that's essentially what it is. I felt like this is not overtly a horror film. It has horror elements. That scene is just not what I was expecting, and I, I think it worked as a payoff for what we've been through. It was a matter of how it was handled. It was a matter of uh, how much we saw on screen. Honestly, I don't think I would have been cheated if, like, a groundskeeper had shown up and just, like, saw her and let her out of the handcuffs. No, dude. Mm. I no, no, no. Same- I, I had that same thought. I'm sorry. No, it's Go. okay. 
I had that same thought watching this. I was like, when I saw that happening, I was like, hmm, how could, what is the only, like, what are other ways this movie could have ended? And all of them were like, oh, like some, like, random person walks in and lets her, and that well, wouldn't at work. At the end of the day, the, the obstacle isn't the bed. You know, the obstacle is what's going on with her character. No, that's what I was going to say. And I think that in, because I have some problems with this movie, but the obstacle is with herself. Like, she's right. only battling herself throughout this whole movie. And in order to escape, she's going to have to destroy herself. And I think that, right. you know, that she literally does that. And yeah, it's fucking gruesome. I loved it. I, I thought that that was perfectly gruesome because she's fucking destroyed her mind. She's gone deep, all this stuff. And the only way that we're get, like the payoff is that, holy shit, she's going to destroy part of her body to escape this situation. I think that it was the exact right amount. Of, I thought well, it was metaphorical, but also good. Uh, great. Well, I that's a fine. metaphor that people often use in life, you know, like to get over something really traumatic or to like, really like turn a new leaf, you, you know, shed a skin and sure. she literally sheds her skin. Yes. Yeah. Well, it also literally slits her wrist. Okay. Yeah. I can, I can get, I mean, if a that. groundskeeper shows up, you cheat her of her entire, the, the culmination of her entire journey. Yeah, that's journey. an absurd point. Well, I don't no, think anyone's well, saying that that's how it should have. No, I'm, I'm saying I don't think I would have minded because really there's an epilogue. Which we I, we're probably ready to talk about now. There's an epilogue that sure. really kind of brings her whole character thing around, and that shows the character that she's escaped the prison of her own mind, rather than the you know the prison of the bed's arbitrary. That's you know she's stuck in the bed and she's going to be stuck there. But then the, the real story is how she overcomes her own demons. Yeah. So when she gets out, she uh, happens to see a photo in the paper that looks a lot like this weird death moonlight man this figure we've been describing and it turns out that this guy is actually a real person it wasn't a hallucination and he's a like killer who's been digging up graves like breaking into people's homes fuck all that fucking fuck all people that in their sleep. i don't care honestly when that happened uh, i was just like why like this character appears for a total of like Maybe two minutes in the movie so oh, far. And, well, I, I think we should finish just right. summarizing what happens before we jump. <laughs> I'm into sorry. Our once Chris broke, I was like, "I'm joining you." Like <laughs> this is bullshit. <laughs> but so, so she goes and confronts him in court. He's being arraigned. She goes and confronts him, and they have a moment. She claims her final victory and walks off in the sunset. So yeah, she just finally, to she finally, I guess, the, I guess happened. the message is she has found the courage to assert herself in front of one of these like oppressors or something. Is that what we're getting from that? She I guess that's what we're supposed. Get, one of yeah. her like hallucinations, I guess. Although he's not really a hallucination. No, he's real. She stands toe to toe with him and says, "Hey, here I am." But see, and to you're me, smaller than I thought you'd be. Like we've never heard that in a movie before. Also, isn't that a metaphor for like Gerald's penis? If I, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, it connects back thematically. Yeah. I. Wow, well, I didn't think of that. Also, I to me see that the epilogue. I could would have been better without it at all. Oh yes, I mean, so a phrase that uh, uh, Kyle of all people coined: unnecessary epilogue. That's exactly what, like I can't think of. I asked as soon as this movie ended. My first comment was, "Name me an epilogue in a movie that worked." I can't think of one. I think if you can't keep the story going on the same speed, you need to just end it. There's no reason to just cut to like twenty years later, or whatever, like different tone, different style. 
mo- like narration as well. Yeah, There's been this, no narration oh. in this film so far. They've done such a great job of not using narration, which is the tool I thought they'd use for her inner voices. And then they resort to that stayed and technique. And like, it would have been better if that guy, the creepy dude, was a hallucination. Better. And the way it's left, and I thought this was very apt, was... You don't really know if he's a hallucination or not. And right. he's like, he symbolizes death. And then as she's on the way out of the house, she gives him his wed- her wedding ring because he collects jewelry. And then she's like, the police never found the wedding ring. So where was it? Was it death? Was it human? Somewhere in between? Good. I love Leave that. It that. I'd rather have that question in my mind Me than too. what I saw. Instead, we get what seems like an excruciatingly long narration that's like, it's like the end of something you'd see on uh, one of these X-Files well, episodes that Patrick hates so much. He's over here shaking his head. Oh my God. She's I, writing a letter to no one. She, yeah, she no, it's to, to her herself. younger self. To her younger yeah. self. Okay, well, yeah. okay, let me she's repeat. She's going to put it in the mailbox. So clearly she's in the therapy house. and her therapist has instructed her to do right. this. But it's absurd. She's going to put it in the mailbox at the lake house and her little <laughs> self's going to come pull it out. <laughs> And um, then, yeah. But no, but they, they give like, oh no, that, that Moonlight Man, he was flesh and blood. He committed all these crimes in these states, in these dates, with these MOs, and he committed these murders, and he did this, and the police raided his house, and this is what they found. On and on and on and on and on. You know I don't what? give one fuck. I didn't have, I, I never invested any amount of energy or, um, or fear in the Moonlight Man through the entire movie. Because again, he appears like twice very briefly. I, I was like, oh my God, I didn't realize you were so hung up on this guy, Jesse. Like, that, that's shocking. Again, if help. it were scary, he wouldn't have to be a freak. Patrick. Counterpoint. He's got a lot to say. Oh, yeah. I I knew you guys had a lot to say on this. I figured I'd just let you go. I have complex feelings on this because when I read the book, and the book does the the same thing. It's all told in third person, and then it switches to first person. She's writing. It's a different font and everything. I was kind of like, yeah, don't like this. Don't like this. I I was super comfortable with the dude just being death, and that was it. That it was another hallucination. And as they started to... As she started to get into, you know, how this was a real guy, he was a serial killer, blah, blah, blah. Here's why he collects bones and jewelry. I was like, oh, really? But it takes on more power in the book that I think doesn't quite come across in the movie because she's being gaslighted a little. Like, there's a guy who's sort of helping her in the book after this whole traumatic thing happens. And she finds out about this serial killer, Jobert is his name. Um, And he's like, no, no, there's no way, like. And, and and she finally, like, kind of, it's her final victory over basically men being fucking shitty to her that this is a real guy and she's not fucking crazy. And that was very powerful in the book. It didn't come across as well in the movie and the, and the voiceover, the monologue didn't work very well at all in the movie. But I think it still had more power for me than it did for you guys because I had that context from the book. I mean, isn't I was- it enough to have her sort of inner struggle resolved? And her to have sort of made peace with her relationship with Gerald. Why do we need the Moonlight Man at all? Like, well, I understand, yeah. like, her being afraid of dying, but, like, that seems really apparent. I don't feel like we need a metaphor to explain, like, yeah, you're chained to a bed, and, like, there's no water, <laughs> there's nobody around, like, yeah, you're gonna die. Like, Stephen King is just, like, again, out of control in this story, it seems. Let's leave, in the it, movie- at, um, let's leave it at the, like, she's helping the counseling. She's doing that stuff. Like, you can tell she's got her shit together at the yeah. end of the movie in a way that she didn't have at the beginning of the movie. Leave it at that. We That's don't need to, all see need her to see barge through the courtroom doors and say, "Hey, to the Moonlight Man." And what does the Moonlight Man say? 
<gasps> well, first of all, he breaks out of his handcuffs. <laughs> like it's <laughs> nothing. Breaks out of his handcuffs and he goes, not real. Moonlight. And that's yes, it. That's it. And he breaks well, out of the handcuffs. Re- he's repeating what she said. Yeah, yeah. she's repeating yeah, what you're she not, said. You're, you're made he's of like mimicking her arms being held above her head. Yeah. I guess it's I supposed know. to be a metaphor, he a metaphor that he breaks handcuffs. the handcuffs. But that's kind of also like, fuck you. I can break handcuffs by myself. That would be like. <laughs> it's like an anti-metaphor. It's like, look what I can do that you couldn't do. <laughs> that would be like if like the en- Jaws ended and the guy went back to the pier and there was just a fisherman like pulling a fucking great white out of the water with a line. I want to back I don't up know. for a minute. It's, it's powerful to me that uh, the hallucination was just an ordinary man. That's powerful to me. It worked in the book, and it still worked. in Except the, the hallucination, I, I don't know. To me, was not that interesting. An ordinary or man. That, story. that hallucination was creepy as fuck. Are you shitting me? An ordinary yeah, man who carries a bag right? of bones. He was creepy as fuck. I just imagined him as death, and I wasn't scared. It is creepy in retrospect, knowing he was fucking real. They should have made that clear at the beginning. That movie would have been way scarier. Oh, I just thought he was a creepy visual. I mean, like, regardless of who he actually is, I thought the visual of him was creepy. I feel like maybe the book does a better job of this. So we have, she has sort of three issues she has to grapple with. Uh, One, her past trauma with her father and what happened to her. Um, so th- that resurfaces and then she sort of realizes why it's just resurfaced now. Then there's her relationship with her husband. Who knows how long they've been together and years. how long she's been 11 years that she's been in this really terrible relationship where she's a trophy wife. She has no agency whatsoever. And then ultimately there's death beyond that. You know, she's spent this much of her life. She's in her mid forties or late forties probably at this point. And she's like, Oh, I've wasted all my life dealing with like these shitty men. Like I'm this much closer to, to death. And it turns out that death takes the form of a creepy man who, who walks in the house. I didn't feel like the movie did a good job of sort of laying out that hierarchy of her fears. I didn't feel, I felt like the Moonlight Man was just a gimmick. It was just sort mm-hmm. of like, oh, this is a horror movie, so we've got to have a creepy guy in the corner. It didn't really register for me, so I was baffled that so much time was spent on that epilogue and how she felt about what happened regarding that. And it just seems so silly because it's so tonally removed from everything that came before it. Yeah. It is. It's true. I mean, it, it worked for me in the book, and the, a lot of the staging of it was awkward in the movie to me. I got one thing I want to back up to. I think this is worth mentioning. So before the Moonlight Man is a huge part of the the epilogue, but so she escapes. Um, her husband is a lawyer and a, a very powerful one. We we surmise. I was a little confused that like her, his firm wanted to keep things quiet for the press regarding what happened, how he died, and how she wound up with this fucked up hand, you know, and, and starving and, and dehydrated. How does that play on the book? Because I got the sense that, like, it should have been that, like, she wants to tell the story of what happened. Good point. And it felt like... Yeah, she, like, settled really easily. It felt, yeah, exactly. It felt strange to me that she just immediately settled for this cover-up story. She's right back to keeping secrets. It's like, you've just, like, fucking cut your hand off, practically, to get out of these chains, and then you're going to pretend nothing ever happened? You're not going to even give yourself a sense of justice? Mm, I think I think it was just presented as that she didn't want that detail out there. She didn't want to share that story. And it's not that which scandalous. Which makes sense to me. Yeah. It's a little scandalous. Like, it would be pretty embarrassing if, like, you were, ch- like, found chained to your bed and your husband had a heart attack and you were, like, 
Yeah, like, I mean, I don't want know. people to like who aren't close to me to know details of my sex life, right? In the, I'm per- sure in the that first would place, be tough. let alone like splashed across every newspaper. Yeah, I guess I was like baffled that they included that scene, but then again, it's also like, well, it's a question the viewer is going to have. Like, okay, so she escapes and goes back to a normal life. Like, well, how does she handle that publicly? Well, she did found the foundation in the movie. She starts a yeah. foundation to help other kids who are sexually abused and starts telling the story about her it was abuse. All perfect, perfect. Oh, Should've I didn't like that. that. Oh, I didn't like oh, that because that, that ties was way too on. Uh, I didn't like it either. I'm like, dude, she gets out, she crashes the car, she gets discovered. I want to see a shot of her writing a letter to her younger self. You can even have some narration. That's it. That's all I want to know. She's okay. She's worked through her shit. She's going to turn a new leaf. And it's left to I'm with Steven, it's left to the audience to imagine what what her life is like going I forward. I thought the starting a foundation for abused kids was cheesy in the context of this movie. That seems super cheesy. It felt like I, the movie was trying to be like socially responsible. Yeah, it felt like it was way. like this Yeah, I mean, it this movie very it feel, yeah, and it does. And this movie is about like an abused woman and you want people like that to recover of course and i feel like they went too far in that direction like look at this complete recovery like vengeance to the moonlight man <laughs> you know foundation for abused kids it also sets a you high know? bar for sexual assault survivors right it's like if you can just make a life for yourself where you're okay that's enough mm, like yeah. i just it just seemed like it went way too far in the other direction so the ending had some problems <laughs> Oh boy. Well, then we get to the credits. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I was, as much as I cringe during that degloving scene where she's cutting off her flesh as soon as Mike Flanagan's name comes up and the, the eclipse effect over the G in his last name, great. I was like, dude, come no, on. the eclipse is such a. Yo, wait, what are you guys talking about? You guys reacted really viscerally to that. And I don't, what was the problem? With the the problem is the eclipse. The total eclipse is such a strong visual symbol in this movie. And it directly ties back to this very uncomfortable scene where she, there's a 12 year old getting molested. And then it says directed by Mike Flanagan and the G dude. like glows like an eclipse. Wow. Couldn't have said it better. That's exactly <laughs> what I felt. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> it's just kind of like, all right, man, dude. Wow. So Mike Flanagan. Well, but it, it, it's not like it was just his name. It did that over all the like G's uh, and O's in the credits. No, I yeah, think it did. No, it did. Because he was in the credits several times. Oh, did, Stephen did, King's it name did over came up. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't like he was, was just giving just himself like, special treatment. <laughs> if it had only he been his name, only I get the eclipse letter. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say Mike Flanagan's still a work in progress. Uh, his movies continue to be above par for horror, but I still don't think he's struck a masterpiece that I would recommend to everybody. Well, we, so how do we feel about this movie? So I yeah, think this right. is time to get into it. I want Steve to go first this time. Steve. Oh, wow. Okay. Cue it, view it, or screw it. View it. I think this is a fascinating movie. I had a lot of fun with it. I mean, epilogue, notwithstanding, it's very finely directed and acted and written. I, again, I haven't read the book, but I've read a bit about it, and Patrick has given us a lot of important details about it. It seems like, you know, as good of a Stephen King adaptation as you could probably hope for. Or even an adaptation of any novel, you have to make changes to suit the format. And I think this movie was pretty inventively crafted. Um, I was enthralled by everything except the last twenty minutes. I say view it. Um, if if you have a history of sexual abuse, definitely don't view it. Uh, or stay you know, away from know it. what you're getting into. Yeah, because I guess in some sense it could be very empowering to you, depending on where you're at in your process. But view it for sure, Chris. This is really, really hard call for me. Um, I would prefer to have several days to mull this over, but as is, I'm somewhere between cue it and view it. I think I'm going to land on cue it. It's it's got a lot of strengths. I don't know. I I just 
I don't think I would want to watch this movie again. And the degloving scene, you know, it had some issues. I think that's the number one reason, like, people should watch this movie. Because that's, like, such a strong scene that's going to, like, stick in people's minds. And you're going to reference when you talk to your friends about this movie. But I don't know. Uh, <laughs> if you were going to do a super cut of this movie... That would be in there. Like, it would just, like, it'd be, like, five seconds and then degloving scene. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good horror um, stuff. There's some stuff that doesn't work. There's a lot of, you know, just people in the bedroom sharing monologues back and forth. A lot of it's very compelling. Some of it, meh, I don't know. I can't really say your time is going to be better spent with most movies on Netflix. This is definitely in the top quarter of you know, it's it's well, it's well, probably the best movie we've watched so far. That's worth mentioning. This is the first movie we've watched where I felt like, oh, this is a film. Like this is a real movie where every element has been thought out. Yeah. So it seems really weird to say view it to 1920 London, <laughs> <laughs> but cue it to Gerald's game. Um, yeah, but it's about enjoyment. It's about. I we yeah. Just want your opinion. My enjoyment. I'm going to say cue it. Um, final answer, at least for now, Patrick. <laughs> Cue it, view it, or screw it. I say view it. You know, you mentioned that Flanagan hasn't made a masterpiece yet, and I think this is, may may not be a masterpiece, but it's pretty close to one. Other than that epilogue, but that's all he's hamstrung by the material to a degree. Like that's, I mean, I guess you could have changed the story completely and left that out, but the the weak points are mostly because of the original source material, which is that very difficult epilogue that works for it, it worked for me in the book. Um, but you know, it's tough. It's tough to get around that. But setting that aside. Definitely view it. Elizabeth. I would say view it with some caveats. I would say view it while you have um, something to multitask on, i.e. knitting or um, some other thing that you can do while you're watching. Making chain mail. Yeah, whatever whatever you do. do, For for our male viewers. Do that while you're watching this because you don't like there's some monologues that, you know, it's like when you're watching Hamlet. Do you need to listen to that whole thing? You don't. You don't need to listen to Bruce Greenwood laying on the bed, listening the whole t- or talking the whole time. You can be knitting. Um, I would also say uh, it's a 100% view it if you're willing to turn it off as soon as it's clear that she survives and not watch the epilogue. Then that would be... Amen. That Amen. would be... It's a great film. Also, you need to knit because you're going to be fidgeting one way or another in your seat. So you might as well be doing something. Yeah, and knit knit fast because if you knit fast enough, you can hold up your knitting over your eyes for the uh, degloving scene. And then it'll be great. (laughs) Uh, It'll be great. So I would say view it uh, with a couple caveats. But, you know, it's a good movie. And, you know, it is. It's actually it's a really interesting portrayal of the nuances of sexual abuse, I would say. And that is... um, it doesn't take that lightly, and I think that's important. So, do you guys really think there Good were that point. many monologues? You guys keep talking about these monologues. I, no, I was going to say, I didn't like, think there I, was that much monologue. There are quite a few monologues, but I found them so compelling that I just took it as a part of the structure of the film. It didn't really stand out to me that that was how the film was constructed, um, because it is a lot of like her hallucinations talking to her and helping her. I mean, deal I guess with her it emotions. is all technically a monologue in her head. Yeah, but. it is one internal monologue, but I don't know. I found it fascinating. That's I, just, I hung uh, on every word. That's just what I'm putting my finger on right now you know an hour after we watched this movie to say that i just it didn't entertain me very much throughout i would say i got more entertainment value out of ouija origin of evil for sure and also more entertainment value out of hush which didn't aspire to say as much but um i think is a more fun movie from start to finish. Oh, well one. gerald's game certainly is not a fun movie it's not a fun movie so i guess it depends on how you like your horror you know 
for me, I mean, Patrick knows this, and I guess you're learning because you've you've watched a couple of films I've recommended to you. Well, did you watch The Witch yet? Not yet. Not yet, but you watched Under the Skin. You know, I like movies that are that are focused on dialogue and performances without much else going on. To me, that that can be really gripping, and for the most part, this is and gripping is a weird term to use in a movie where a woman basically cuts her the flesh off her hand, but and is unable to grip anything. Not even a tiny little key. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're uh, we're gonna make maybe the most jarring segue of all time because next week we're watching Three Headed Shark Attack. Oh boy! So um, I hope you find your strong performances and your strong <laughs> uh, dialogue in that one. Uh, I don't have any hopes for that, but we'll see. We'll see. I'm gonna give it a chance. If you can't wait to hear from us before then, you can always drop by our social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at AmonCast on all platforms, E-H-M-O-N-Cast. Drop us a line. Troll us a little. We love to troll back. And uh, also drop by, leave us a review on iTunes or whatever your podcast service is. People say it's a big deal. It helps a lot. I haven't seen the evidence, but a million people can't be wrong, right? (laughs) So uh, until then... For every horror movie on Netflix, I'm Chris. I'm Patrick. I'm Elizabeth. I'm Steven. And don't get chained to a bed. Bye.